Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? They answered him, John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others one of the prophets. He asked them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, You are the Messiah. He sternly ordered them not to tell anyone about him. But he began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. This is the word of the Lord. I remember distinctly one day sitting in class in seminary with one of our most famous professors, Dr. Albert Outler, who looked out over our class and said, From time to time I hear former students preach, and I'm always saddened for the time they get through to discover they haven't read a book since they graduated. That came back to haunt the seminary because I never forgot it. Every summer in August, when I would be working on texts and titles for the next year, I would call the seminary and ask, Who's teaching the courses this year in the books I was going to be preaching from, and what are they using for textbooks? You know that we've mentored 20 different interns from Perkins, a whole year each one. So often in August, year after year during those 20 years, I was there for their orientation, and I would be going up and down the hallways looking for those professors. I couldn't get them to respond, I'd tell the dean. You said you would help us know which books we need to buy, so we need a bibliography. Every year, what courses are being taught in the Bible, and who's teaching them, and what books are they recommending? So I remember a few years ago, when Mark was the book for the year, and one of the professors said, there's a professor here in the United States named Dr. Robert Gulick. He has spent 25 years of an adult lifetime on one book, Mark the Gospel of Mark, and he's now decided to write a two-volume commentary on that Gospel. Now think about it, folks. Mark's Gospel only has 16 brief chapters. And somebody's invested so much time and energy in that one book, he's going to write two huge volumes on that one book. He knows, as do all the professors, that the Bible was not written in chapter and verse. It was later carved up into chapter and verse so that we could all reference. We could all turn to the same book, same chapter, same verse. Not written that way. And Dr. Gulick was convinced that Mark had written his gospel in two parts. That is, he had written all the way to a climactic point and then everything that happened after that point. So his commentary is called Mark 1, 1 through 8. 26. Mark chapter 1, verse 1 through 8, 26. He says those who divided it up into chapter and verse didn't get it right. A new chapter should have started at verse 27, which is where we began reading this morning, because this is the crucial moment in Jesus' ministry, second only to his death and resurrection. This moment. Let's take a look. Mark says Jesus was teaching his disciples as they moved towards Caesarea Philippi. When one goes today to where Caesarea Philippi once stood, one finds only these beautiful springs. 
becoming a river, the Jordan River, that flows south 25 miles into a beautiful lake called the Sea of Galilee. But in Jesus' time, there was a significant capital city there. It was founded by a fellow named Herod Philip. You remember Herod the Great was king when Jesus was born. Herod the Great died in the year 4 before the Common Era. The Romans refused to let his sons be called kings. They let them be tetrarchs. And so one was named Herod, like his father. He married a woman named Herodias, and they had a daughter named Salome. One of that Herod's brothers, Herod Antipas, decided he loved his brother's wife more than his own, so he took his brother's wife, daughter Salome, became stepdaughter to him. He ruled in the southern part, down around Jericho. There was another one up north called Herod Philip, and he took a liking to his niece, Salome, and he ended up marrying her. I mean, this was a sordid mess, you get it. Eh? This Herod family were really a mess. But they had money and some power. So Jesus takes his disciples on a long two-day walk up to the headwaters of the Jordan River to this beautiful capital city and asks them, Who do people believe I am? And who do you believe I am? I mean, where do you see the power? Where do you see the riches? What are you deciding is most important in your life? You remember there would come a Sunday morning when from the West, the, all the signs of Roman power, Pontius Pilate entering Jerusalem from the West, from the Mediterranean, with these beautiful big horses and legions of soldiers. And from the East, coming up the Jericho Road and then getting on a burro, with his toes dragging in the sand, Jesus of Nazareth. Where do you see the power? Where do you see the riches? Where do you see the meaning in your life? Evelyn Bentz has written about her community's efforts to keep up with all of their older single adults. It is true that older single adults may fall in their floor and cannot get up. So their community decided to get those little tiny radio responders, and every single senior who was willing to wear one would do so. That senior was supposed to name someone who might be a first responder if they had a problem. So Evelyn said she signed up to be first responder to her neighbor and a single older adult. Several weeks had passed, she said, when one night she got a call from what would be IMSA for us, saying, uh, the radio signal has gone off in your neighbor's house. She says she has slipped on her stairway, didn't fall all the way down, but has slipped and now can't get up or down. Would you go check on her? And Evelyn said, sure. She'd been given a key to the house. So she walked next door, unlocked the door, walked in, found her neighbor on the stairway, not hurt, but physically unable to get up or down. And when Evelyn said, Anne, Anne said, oh, Evelyn, Evelyn, I've called for help. They'll be here any minute. Evelyn said, my neighbor was expecting an ambulance with lights and people in uniform, and she got me. That's who you called, I said, but you got me. Now let me get my arm round your waist. I'm going to help you to bed. 
What did you expect of God's long-awaited Messiah? That's the question, you see. Right, number two. Second thing scholars note in this passage is that suddenly Jesus asked them a question which was just opposite to the way things normally worked. That is, normally the student asks questions of the rabbi. Let me remind you of Fiddler on the Roof, Old Teddy's Lament, I wish I were a rich man so I wouldn't have to get up so early every morning and milk this old cow. I wouldn't have to hitch up my pony to a cart and deliver milk door to door so my five daughters could marry an appropriate spouse. If I were a rich man, I would go every day to the synagogue and ask questions that would cross a rabbi's eyes. Remember? That's the way it usually went. One asked questions of the rabbi. This time the rabbi asked a question. Who do you say that I am? Who do you say? Hmm? What do you see in me? When Gail and I go to great art exhibits of the world, some of the really great ones, we usually prefer older art. Before there were so many wonderful cameras in the world, when artists were counted upon to preserve a moment, when a baby was baptized, when a young person took a next significant step in his or her life, weddings, coronations, to stand and look at those paintings and observe all the delicate work, lace around a collar or a, a sleeve of a shirt, to see how magnificently these artists could portray a beautiful fur, ermine around some monarch's neck. When we get on down to modern art, not so much usually for us. But occasionally we do go to a museum or one wing of an exhibit where they are showing different kinds of art. Surrealist is one of those kinds. In my office upstairs, I have a big fat Bible called the Jerusalem Bible. And it's made fatter because it has lots of paintings in it, of reproductions, of course, of paintings by Salvador Dali. Salvador Dali was an, a surrealist. Well, there was another na named René Magritte. You remember that name? René Magritte was born in 1898 in Lassine, Belgium. When he was 12 years old and in school, his mother went down to the local river, waded out in water over her head, and gulped in as much water as she could, taking her own life. Rene had already been fascinated with painting, and family and friends would find him after school down at the river, painting, painting that river over and over and over, the swirling waters of that river where his mother died. When he was a young adult, he went away to Brussels to study and from there on to Paris and became a surrealist. But earlier in his adult life, he painted a painting that I think is really interesting. He painted a painting of a painter who has an easel before him and the model he's painting on the table. It's an egg, a chicken egg. But the artist is painting an adult chicken. 
I mean, you have an egg on the table, and you have this beautiful animal with strong legs and claws and beak, beautiful, beautiful feathers. What do I see? And what will it become? What do I see? A peasant from Jesus, named Jesus of Nazareth. Not certified in the temple in Jerusalem. One without lots of formal training. A teacher, a preacher, a healer, a worker of miracles, Messiah of God. Number three, Simon gives the right answer, of course. The right answer. You're the Messiah. Mark doesn't go on with that immediately. He immediately has Jesus shift to a different line of thought. The other synoptics, Matthew and Luke, pick up on that. They say there was a little more discussion right there. You are the Messiah of God. Jesus said, well, I'm not going to call you Simon anymore. I'm going to start calling you Petros, Peter, the rock. Upon this rock I will build my church. Flesh and blood is not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. It's the right answer. I believe you are the long-awaited Messiah of God. And if I confess my sins to you, you will forgive me and set me right with Almighty God. Carol Kuykendall has written that one day she got their mail out of the box and was sorting through, and suddenly here was an envelope a little bigger, different shape from the others. So she took a look at it quickly and saw that the return address said Photo Radar Program. So she opened it first. There were three photographs inside. One, the front end of her car. Second, a picture of her definitely driving that car. And the third, her rear license plate. And the letter said, You were recently photographed driving 38 in a 25-mile-per-hour zone. Now, you may call the municipal court and be assigned a court time during which you can explain this to the judge and see if you might be found innocent. If you are guilty you may send in your check. Payment will close this matter. And she thought, I want to go to municipal court. And then I thought, but what would my excuse be? I hardly remember going through that neighborhood. Hardly remember going down that street. Don't remember why I was in any particular hurry. So I read the last sentence again. Payment will bring this matter to a close. People sometimes ask me if I've read the latest book about why somebody doesn't believe there's a God. And I say, no, I haven't read that book. When I was 11 years old, I made a decision that closed that matter for me. I decided that I believe there is one God who created the heavens and the earth. And the more scientists can help us understand how God did that, fine. And I believe that that God so loved the world and all in it, including me, 
that he sent his son Jesus, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That this Jesus of Nazareth was in fact the clearest revealer, clearest picture of God, of God's heart, of God's disposition toward us that's ever been given. And it closed the matter for me. All the years since then, I've been trying to find out as much as I can about what Jesus was saying, teaching, living out, so I better understand the heart of that one true God. Number four, Jesus immediately began to tell them how the Son of Man must go to Jerusalem, undergo great suffering, and be killed, and then be raised. They weren't ready for that. Simon began to rebuke him, and Jesus said, Get behind me, Simon. Get behind me. I'm going this way. Are you going with me? I'm going this way. Get behind me. Come along, if you will. Maria Alberghetti has written that one of her favorite stories is a story about an old man who rode into Jerusalem on a camel one Friday. There was a great clamor going on in the city of Jerusalem, and when he inquired about what was going on, they told him that three men had just been force-marched, half-dragged through the streets of Jerusalem, and had now been crucified right at the outer walls. He made his way there. He asked, who are they? Well, somebody said, the one on the left is a nobody, and the one on the right is a nobody. The one in the middle, he's that fellow Jesus from Nazareth. This old man almost had to be helped down off his camel. He reached into one of the bags there and took out a beautiful box of expensive, expensive myrrh and climbed up onto that rock-like hill called Golgotha and placed his box of myrrh at the foot of the cross to anoint this Jesus of Nazareth for burial when he would surely die. The same men who 33 years before had followed a bright light in the sky to a little nowhere place called Bethlehem who had knelt at an animal trough where a baby lay in the hay who had placed by that animal trough this expensive gift of myrrh. Maria said, I read this story and I have one hope that the storyteller does not satisfy. I hope he waited around Jerusalem until Sunday morning. Amen.